0: I just registered for a, a French kindergarten and there I said that obviously we talk French all the time at home with him <laughs> um, did you say it in French <laughs> no
1: <laughs> that's way less convincing you should have said it in French you idiot
0: I <laughs> know uh, but like, the, it, like it's weird when you like you go there and then you start talking in German with the person and um Like, I went there with a plan to speak French, but she addressed me in German. So, I responded in German. I was like, but wait, I wanted to speak French. And then, like, mid-conversation, switching to French is just weird.
1: That's the problem when you come as a foreigner. Like, usually when you establish a relationship in one language, it's really hard to, like, switch the relationship to a different language. So, if you come into the country, like, speaking no German or speaking none of the language, you establish all your relationships in the wrong language. So, you should, like, come to the the country do an intensive course not like make any friends during that time
0: (laughs) lock yourself down
1: socially isolate yourself for at least two to three months while you learn the language and then start the relationships because otherwise like yeah that's the way (laughs) (laughs) um i learned a really cool fact this week
0: I, I mean it's we haven't st- rolled the intro even yet, so like, this is all pre show, but we can, can go I, can if I it's it? if it's a good pre show <laughs> fact, go for it.
1: It's only a pre show fact, it's inappropriate for anything else. Pigeons <laughs> mate for life. That's my fact. But sometimes male pigeons um participate in Oh geez. <laughs> It's like extra couple mar- mating or I don't know the way they said it is like it sounds fancy but it basically means like the male pigeons like to fuck around like theoretically they made a r- for life but basically it means that the poor like female pigeon has to be like tied down and the male is just like getting his jiggy on um, extra pair matings
0: <laughs> extra pair meetings, but there's many birds that made for life, right? It's fantastic. I don't that's know surprising. if any of
1: that's true. I never really believed that. I think he was humans- there's
0: like like parakeets or penguins or shit.
1: Uh, penguins are gay. I think that was the, the thing, right?
0: Yeah. I all have of a,
1: them. All penguins are gay.
0: I have a fact for, for gayness later in the show.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I maybe yes. I find it very hard to believe that. I think maybe some Pairs do mate like long term, but I think also humans really like to put monogamy on other species just because it suits yeah. like the yeah. the mission statement of our major religions. So I'm always a little bit suspicious when somebody's like, a blah blah blah, swans mate for life, and it's like swans are tiny assholes who are filled with worms. Like, let's not like live our life like swans. Like, sure, you're the royal bird of the Queen of England, so you can't get eaten. That's a pro, but everything else is like <laughs> you are physically infested and you're you're dirty. You're like a <laughs> filthy, angry like swamp monster. Like, is this what you want in life? I don't know. All I'm saying is not my life choice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shit. It, it, it feels so powerful be in control of the sound ball. It <laughs> it's just like, shut make, up, Tegan, shut up. <laughs> you know, I can make like, such a statement, instead of saying anything, I just like press oh. the button. It's, it's better Welcome than anything I could
1: have said. To Plans and My That was a new segment called This Is Why Tegan is signal, <laughs> Single. <laughs> Because she won't stop ranting about swans. <laughs> um, yeah, we're a podcast, we talk about plants, usually not swans, um plant science specifically how plants work. We also take a talk about pipettes, which is a instrument we use in the lab to manipulate small volumes of liquid in order to research science. But Joram is constantly disappointed that we never talk about pipettes very much.
0: Yeah, but I'm also to blame. Like I never bring a paper about pipettes. I'm like if <laughs> i c I'm my own Lux Smith as we say in German. Your own
1: locksmith? Is that a thing? <laughs> ich bin mein was?
0: Ich bin meines eigenen Glückes Schmied. Schmied? Was Schmied is, a Schmied? is a blacksmith. Like oh. I'm the blacksmith of my own luck.
1: Yeah, my luck blacksmith. My locksmith is kind of cute though. Blacksmith. Like a locksmith, a locksmith.
0: Yeah, a locksmith is... Uh,
1: Just sounds yeah. like you don't know how to say locksmith. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute shall <laughs> so we go straight into the paper I think um, um, yeah
0: if you don't want to hear about my experience at the Staudenmarkt then sure
1: <gasps> I want to hear about it
0: I mean it's I went uh, just, um, it's like two weeks ago now yeah two weeks ago now people who follow us on Instagram know exactly the day because I put it on a the story uh, there's just a Staudenmarkt at the Botanical Garden in Berlin um twice a year you
1: explain what a Staudenmarkt is maybe um,
0: it's a a market it's (laughs) (laughs) It's an open air plant market once in spring once in fall and um, it's yeah you can go there and you get like all of the plants you can then grow in your own garden like unlike a flower market where you have cut flowers that usually you can't propagate all of these plants Mm. are like on soil or they're like uh, bulbs for tulips and so on Mm. And Sorry. the
1: bastards always hold it when I, I'm out of the city. Like, yeah. I'll go away for a weekend they'll be like, that's the weekend.
0: There's, they hold a doodle for all of Berlin and they check, like, the one weekend Tegan says, like, not available. I like,
1: communicates with them, like, okay, she's going, going.
0: Let's like, <laughs> go. Everybody, team, which it's is go.
1: foolish because I'll buy hundreds of plants, immediately kill them and then buy hundreds more the next time. So <laughs> yeah. really, they're only cutting into their own profit.
0: Yeah, well, it was it was a nice and enjoyable day. Um, the botan- botanical garden is always worth a uh, visit and, um, yeah, we bought, I don't I, we actually did didn't buy that many plants because we are not at the point w- with the garden yet that we can plant a lot of different plants i disgusted just- in you but it's always cool to, yeah, just go there and look. Like, the one stand had, I don't know, like t- two dozen varieties of mint. And you can just pick the variety that you liked, like, like footy or, like, chocolatey mint. Did you get the
1: chocolate mint? I like the chocolate no, mint. It I just smells so nice. You like, just rub it every now and then. Yeah, but... You could rub it on the cats and make them smell chocolatey.
0: Yeah, I could, but I won't. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a very nice thing. <laughs> it's a really good anecdote. <laughs> I went there. Full
1: stop. <laughs> well, it has something to do with plants at least, which is better than like 90% yeah. of our terrible anecdotes. <laughs> it's not about swans. Well done.
0: <laughs> it's the paper of the week.
1: Today, I'm the one doing the paper of the week, the weekly paper. Um, and I originally chose something which is called Transient Co-Transformation of CRISPR-Cas9 and Oligonucleotide Templates enables efficient editing of target loci in fiscal metrella patterns. I'll get into that later. It's we'll have by to play the CRISPR
0: news jingle then.
1: Okay, play the CRISPR jingle.
0: CRISPR
1: news. news, 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 news. am yeah, very pleased with himself. He <laughs> see his smug, smirking face. Um, so it's by Yi and Goshima. It came out in plant biotechnology journal, like... August 27th So a couple of weeks ago Only it's pretty early It's actually Still like this Head of print EPUB thing Okay Um But Just as a little bit Of a disclaimer I went to read this On the plane I just came back From France After being at a conference Which was a super nice conference By the way Um I forgot to download the paper before I got on the plane. Literally, as we were taking off, I got my laptop and realized I hadn't downloaded the paper. But the one I had downloaded <laughs> was um, the previous paper by the same guys that they uploaded to BioArchive. So in May this year, they put on BioArchive something called Fast, Efficient and Precise Gene Editing in the Moss Physcomitrella and Petrella Patents. It's effectively the same paper. It's the same information. I just did a quick check to make sure. Um, it's just a bit longer on BioArchive and Maybe they changed a few things, but it it is the same information as far as I can tell. I'm sorry if I did the wrong thing, but it's the story's there.
0: Okay. Yes. I I forgive you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so first, I want to introduce the the species, the model species of the day, which is Physcomitrella patens. Which Yoram?
0: Yeah. Um. It we, is we, we did an article on it, right? It's nope. A, uh, we want to eventually. <laughs> or do we? <laughs> retract 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 this information um no um it's it's a moss right it's moss it's it's a moss and um it has a very cool way of replication right you can uh, reproduce it sexually and asexually
1: so you're thinking about mercantia i think it's actually true for moss as well but i think you're thinking about the article we did right which was about mercantia which is like i mean
0: it's it's pretty much the same plan
1: (laughs) yeah okay so there's these um but fiscal has
0: also has something cool. Uh, you can
1: also, I think you can also reproduce it asexually, but I'm not super sure. But it has, I think you're thinking about the life cycle, which is yeah. Great. Anyway, so there's a group of plants which are prevascular, basically. So like when we think of plants, we often think of like trees and herbs and like bushes and stuff. Yeah. And they all have vascular tissue, which is basically these tubes, these pipes that go inside the plant up and down to allow them to transport yeah. water xylem and like sugars and nutrients and hormones and signals and all of this kind of stuff which is called the phloem and these are really important because they can basically allow plants to be bigger because you now have like these highways to to move things from one side to the other but there's a group of plants which are kind of more like ancient or i mean they're they're less derived they haven't like developed as far away from the original um plant which was like one single celled thing um as our modern as, as like angiosperms or these vascular plants and this is like the non-vascular plants um so they're usually smaller and they also usually have some more limitations on their structure so they can't yeah they can't be so big but they also um they tend to like damp areas like they Mm. tend to need to stay moist because they don't have these tubes to move water around the plant um
0: yeah they can't easily just grow deep roots find some water and then bring it up to the leaves where it's needed
1: they also have something a bit different from roots. It's like a slightly different structure somehow. Anyway, um, so this is bryophytes. It's the division. It's the group of early land plants. They are multicellular. They do live on land. They're not like algae that live in the water, um, but they don't have the, the vasculature, as I said. So they're kind of important because they share a lot of um, fundamental things that all land plants share. So it's a nice way to understand how plants work um, using a kind of simple organism as it would be. Um, But also because they're these early land plants, they're really an important tool to understand the development of plants so the evolution of how plants came out of the water, came to land, became multicellular, started developing like different organs, um, all these things. So organ formation and then also adaptive growth, stress biology, also how the uh, organelles work inside them, um, all these kind of things. So it's pretty important. Moss has some advantages over like, more complex plants, so Arabidopsis is an angiosperm, it's a flowering plant, um, it's probably the most common model we use. Um, mostly it's that it's very small, very quick-growing, and it's quite easy to manipulate, so we've got a whole lot of genetic tools, which I'll get into a bit later. But yeah, I think what Yaron was mentioning before is that they have this quite different sexual life um, from plants. So most of the plants we think of, when we look at them, they're in the diploid phase, which is the same as humans. What you see for humans, it's two copies of every chromosome, one from your mum and one from your dad. But moss, the bit that you see is actually the haploid phase. And in humans, basically the equivalent is only our eggs and our sperm, where there's only one copy of, of yeah. the DNA. It's divided. But the whole moss plant that you see most of the time, that's a haploid. That haploid, then at one certain stage, it makes sperm or it makes eggs, depending on what what's happening if it's got woman parts or man parts and then they come together and make um the diploid but the diploid is not the part you see so the diploid is exists it's quite small it makes some spores and the spore grows back into the haploid again which is then what you see so this is kind of a weird thing for us to get our head around because it's it's kind of the equivalent of us seeing a sperm but like a full life one size one it's a bit different because the haploids then make their own sperm and eggs but it's, it's something like yeah the genetic makeup is is half the normal number as, as yeah. such and this is this is similar to the other um plant species which i was saying was mercant- which is like a liverwort it's like another um non-vascular plant it's also very flat um and we kind of did something about this on the blog a couple of weeks back now i guess yeah yeah I think it's called there's no such thing as Marcantia something no you?
0: there's nothing Marcantia can't do
1: something like that um, so the authors of this paper say that this is um, moss is a great model species and it's even better than Marcantia because it has like more ability to regenerate and to do some special magical scientific tricks than Marcantia. but let's be honest this is a moss paper so of course they're going to say that moss is better
0: than by the way whenever you say moss now I have to think of moss from the IT crowd yeah <laughs> Okay. I hope you, as the listener, you do too.
1: Okay, that seems very distracting. All right. So, um, this particular moss is Physcomitrella patens. Um, it's the model organism of mosses, and I mean, its its common name is spreading earth moss, but I've never heard that before. And I think it's one of those things like Arabidopsis, where technically Arabidopsis has like a common name. It's called Fail cress, or even mouse ear cress but nobody will use that because arabidopsis is is just used as in a common some weirdos
0: do in their papers but
1: but then you just think that guy's weird right yeah yeah um
0: although in, like in german sci- literature it's very common to use like the general german name but nobody uses like nobody knows it in in the public but still we always call it achasmalwand instead of just calling it arabidopsis and for for the people out there both terms mean nothing, so yeah, why not just coin the, the one that you can easily recognize when you read a paper? The
1: non-biologists have never dealt with it in their life yeah. and the biologists have only ever called it arbitopsis, so now you've got like this, this yeah. Venn diagram where the intersection is like journalists who want to talk about it and sound cool, like but
0: Yeah, probably because they researched it on Wikipedia. It's this
1: fetch thing, like stop trying to make it happen. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so most people uh-huh. in our community, at least as far as I know, call it FISCO. If you're a Moss person and you call it something differently, get in touch with me because I do not work with FISCO. But I've heard to it referred to as FISCO or fisco Um, Its genome was sequenced, I think, in 2008. So, like, somehow earlier, Arabidopsis was sequenced in, I think, around 2000. And it has a lot of the resources that you have for Arabidopsis. So there's an international moss center where you can get um, different ecotypes of the moss, or different like races um, and different mutants. They're kind of publicly available as you have um, with Arabidopsis. You have um, NASC and some like um, basically yeah. online shops where you can buy what you want. The other thing, apart from basic biology, we always, already talked about why it might be useful in that terms, is it has some use in... Um, Uh, bioengineering basically. So you can grow this moss in huge 500 liter reactors and you can use them to um, produce protein products which might be valuable. And apparently it has really good stability from like different batches. Um, And I read a very quick introduction to a review that was written at the end of last year by Ralph Reski and some colleagues. He's a moss guy. Um, And they said about a dozen human proteins are already being produced in um, fisco as like possible biopharmaceuticals. Not only are these like bring produced well, but they actually might be bio betters. So they actually like work better than <clears throat> like the animal produced um, uh, pharmaceuticals, biopharmaceuticals. Um, and some of these have even made their way into clinical trials um, for cosmetics, but also for medicine. So moss has this kind of dual benefit. Okay. Um, the most amazing thing about moss, which you don't get in in higher plants like Arabidopsis, is that you can do, use um, well, it can use homologous recombination. It has homologous recombination, which works highly efficiently in the nuclear genome. Mm-hmm. So we've discussed this a little bit before. Um, but when you transform the nuclear genome of Arabidopsis, you basically throw something in you either use agrobacteria or you you shoot things with a bullet basically biolistics.
0: yeah and it just randomly integrates somewhere in the genome you have no idea where it integrates you don't know how often it will integrate if it will integrate at multiple uh, um, places or if it will integrate all in one place and then with multiple copies or just one copy there's a little bit of an unknown there and you have to have controls to account for that Um, and it makes stuff more complicated um, but it's the most basic way we know how to use that, but we have some places where you can use homologu- homologous recombination mm. to do that.
1: So basically, like with, with Rabidopsis, we now have these Tdna lines, so they're like mutants where there's a <clears> disruption in a gene. But this was found out because they made all of these basically random disruptions throughout the whole genome. And then they went through a very laborious process of trying to work out where each individual insertion was, each individual Tdna insertion yeah. is. In *Moss* you can use homologous recombination, which means you can basically make a change or a disruption. And as long as you put the left-hand side and the right-hand side of your sequence as the same as something that's already in the genome, that left and right will basically swap themselves in with the native left and right that you find in the genome. And we can do this in the chloroplast.
0: Yeah, which makes the oh. chloroplast, like, biotechnology so powerful because we can, like, very control very easily how much of our gene copy is there and where exactly it is in the genome of the chloroplast. And in Fisco, we can do that in the entire nuclear genome. Um, mm-hmm. And it just gives us much more precision and control over what's happening. And we like the chances of it randomly integrating somewhere else are close to zero so we really know when we find our product in the end there that it's just in the place where we put it and nowhere else and it doesn't disrupt any sort of like native function which is always a big problem like if you randomly hit a gene that's important then you might see an effect of that and that of the actual change that you introduce and so on
1: yeah and related to that a fun fact about tdna insertion lines this is this resource we usually use for Arabidopsis the average tdna insertion line has more than one tdna insertion so even if you see you have an insertion in your gene of interest you should definitely check as an arabidopsis researcher that there's not another insertion in a separate place and yeah. this could be causing all of the phenotypes that you see
0: yeah so always be careful <laughs> with that and try to use homologous ho- homologous homo recommendation.
1: Yeah, and one of the other benefits of these kind of simple organisms, not to be too patronising, is that (laughs) throughout plant evolution, there's been a lot of whole genome duplication or at least large-scale genome duplication events, which basically means whole chunks of chromosomes have just like copied themselves and pasted themselves again. Um, And this means that almost every single gene in Arabidopsis is somehow a little bit redundant. So a lot of them have um, another gene or several other genes or they belong to a small family of genes, and it means that if you alter or like, knock out, destroy the function of just one of them, you often don't see anything because another one...
0: That's like slightly different sort of takes a place because it still lingers around there and sometimes they're expressed to very redundancy. low levels. There's yeah. some redundancy, yeah. And that can stuff make stuff really hard because you yeah, you try to have an effect, but there's another like backup guy jumping in and replacing the thing that you just try to break.
1: So, one argument for using Marcantia or um, Fisco is that they have, they're like earlier in evolutionary history and they might have less of these events. I know that's true for Marcantia and I I think it might be true for Fisco as well, but correct us if we're wrong. Um, Despite the fact that homologous recombination in the nuclear genome is possible in Fisco, the authors of this paper argue that even though we can do it, it can be a little bit time consuming. And this is again that even though Fisco has less of these events potentially, actually, I should have really checked that effect that Um, there is still some gene redundancy and some gene copies so it means you can't like target multiple genes at one time with the homologous recombination you have to do it all individually you can get around that by doing RNAi so it's when you basically put like a small stretch of sequence um, which expresses and basically blocks um, its complementary strand Um, but this is it's kind of a pain in the butt kind of technique and it never really worked very well. <laughs> it's always very variable. Um yeah. you get different levels of interference, a different level of effectiveness. You never get a complete knockout. You basically get knockdowns. It's it's very like it's it's not great. Um so the authors suggest that hey, we should be using CRISPR Cas9 for really changing, knocking things out and altering things also in yeah. in Moss. So as a reminder, CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR stands for clustered regularly into space short palindromic repeats. Um, it's basically just a genetic mechanism where you hook up a stretch of RNA which searches for a sequence in a DNA and you kind of link that to a cutter. So that's Cas9, it's an endonuclease and the, the guide RNA, this stretch of, of nucleotides finds the bit and then cuts it in the right place with the, the Cas9 um and by doing this cutting you make a double strand break so you cut through both of the complementary strands of the dna um, this is originally something which evolved as a defense mechanism so you're trying to cut anything that invades like foreign dna like viruses which kind yeah
0: of- yeah i think it was a bacteria strains that developed this like some bacteria species um and the a bit overused but very accurate analogy is the like search and replace function you have in text editors right you have mm-hmm. a very long string of text and then you search for an adequately long string of uh, of a query text you find it somewhere and then at this point where you find it you change something you can um, in the in in the cell, there is then a, a cut made, and then sometimes when this cut is repaired, there are mistakes introduced, and these amount to uh, base pair deletions most of the time. And this can be like from single base pairs to short stretches, like five to ten base pairs, that mm-hmm. can be deleted, um, uh, just at the the cutting site that you selected for.
1: Yeah, so that's basically it. the CRISPR-Cas9 itself just cuts. But then the cell tries to fix it. It, tries, it has a whole lot of different um, repair mechanisms which try to come and fix the break. But usually they don't work perfectly. So as Yoram said, sometimes they put in one base or they take a few too many out. Something goes a little bit wrong. And of course, you know, if you put just one extra base in, you can shift the entire um, protein. So you can just disrupt it and mean that where there used to be a protein, there is no longer a protein. These days, we often use CRISPR-Cas9 with two different um, guides. So you put one at the front of a gene and one at the back of the gene with the idea that if you cut both of them, there's a little bit in the middle that kind of floats out and then hopefully the ends will join up again. So this is a a way to get like even larger, like whole gene deletions. Um, Yeah, so the way that these repair mechanisms work, there's there's a few different machineries that exist already in the cell. But the general idea is also linked to homology. So they often look for something that looks similar and use that as a template to repair. Not always, but this is one of the kind of mechanisms. They look for like kind of similar bits and try to match up to see Mm. how they should should place things back in. And this is where the the benefit of the system that they're using here comes in. They're not just using CRISPR-Cas9, but they're co-transforming. So they're putting at the same time into the cell oligodeoxynucleotides. Mm -hmm. So this is short stretches basically of DNA. And the idea is that DNA exactly mimics the stretch that they're cutting, so that then when you cut it, you can use that short stretch as a template for the cell to then replace Mm -hmm. and repair. And of course, it's one thing if it's exactly the same thing, you just restore the gene. But instead of using exactly the same thing, you can maybe put exactly the same thing in with one or two base pairs changed. And in that way, you can very precisely change the gene. So now instead of just cutting it and potentially destroying it, you're cutting it, but then you're replacing it with something which has the modifications that you want to put in
0: yeah and these can be like destructive modifications just like knocking out a gene very precisely or which is probably more useful is like slightly changing it like changing the amino acid at a certain position and therefore changing a protein property very precisely at a single position um, which we usually when we want to do that we have to like replace the entire gene right we have to like synthesize a new gene with this one replaced amino acid and they like, shoot it somewhere in the cell hope that it doesn't hit something that it shouldn't hit and then we have and then hopefully knock out also like the original protein so very complicated with this CRISPR and the template we can just like yeah introduce that and then have the original protein change which is like one specific position slightly different
1: mm-hmm. Um yeah so they said exactly what you just kind of explained they can do amino acid substitutions they can also put insertions or deletions they can change splice sites or they can even insert small tags so like mm-hmm. um something that like glows maybe or i think something smaller is better like a his tag something that you can use then like as a as a kind of um sequence magnet to pull down the resulting protein It's basically yeah. the idea.
0: Oh, it's actually a really cool application.
1: Yeah. So this has already been done in flowering plants. Um so it's not the newest technology. Um in twenty seventeen it was done by colonia and Guyon del Bast at al So yeah. Uh so they basically set up this idea. The even um added benefit of doing this in the moss is that they could transiently transform protoplasts and um, it basically the whole system allowed them to identify mutant lines within four weeks which is insanely fast in scientific yeah. terms like less than a month of work and now you have like the the new plants so with an Arabidopsis this would take like six months I would say something like this
0: yeah yeah Yeah. depending on a little bit of luck also but yeah six months is a good time to for mm. Arabidopsis yeah
1: So, I mean, now they just did a whole lot of tests to kind of show that this concept works. So various proof of concepts with different genes. I'm not going to go into the details of the genes because I think that's not so important. I think it's more just to show what they did. First, they turned a start codon into a stop codon. So a start codon is basically the signal that says to start making a protein. And obviously you put a stop there, you can guess what happens. The protein doesn't get made. Um, And they tried this using two different templates. So one was using a double strand um, stretch as a replacement, mm-hmm. and one was using a single-stranded stretch as a replacement. So it's DNA, but it's, it looks a bit like an RNA. It's only got one strand. Yeah, And this is because they kind of wanted to see which of them was better. Um, they also tried making a small insertion or deletion into the same gene, again with single-strand and double-strand. And from this, they found that basically double-strand worked best. Um, having said that, the single-strand still did work, And there was actually a bit of um, change in the efficiency depending on which targeted gene they had. So in some cases, the single strand worked almost as well as the double-stranded. In some cases, it barely worked at all or it didn't work at all. But overall, the message was double-stranded is better, but single-strand can also work in some cases. They also tried doing this without putting the CRISPR in first to see if just having a template was enough to already like mm-hmm. switch it out using this kind of homologous recombination, but it didn't really work. So it kind of implied that having the break was what set up the, the repair mechanisms into work. Um, the next test they did was what they kind of aim to do, which is try to do not just one site, but try two different sites at one stage. This is called multi- multiplexing, um, two sites, one CRISPR. Um, So here they tried splicing and also changing the amino acids. They changed the splice site and also changed some amino acids. And the two genes they targeted, one of them was like the perfect match for the, the guide RNA. So it was like the best chance. And the second one was kind of like, it should probably be targeted based on our calculations and our, our algorithms, but we're not super certain. And it's exactly what they got. They managed to get both of them being changed at the same time, but they found that the perfect one was much more likely to get hit. And basically when the less perfectly one was hit, it was always that the perfect one was already hit. So it just says yep. that the perfect one has better efficiency, which is yep. really exactly what you'd expect. So. They said, yep, it's possible to use this method to target multiple sites, but obviously it's sensitive to mismatches, and you massively reduce the efficiency if you do have mismatches as they had in that second site, yeah? Okay, so the obvious next step after doing the two with one was to do three with one, the menage a trois. Um, Here they tried some homologues, and again, they basically got success. So they found that they could hit all three at once with about 50% of mm-hmm. the the random colonies that they... they um, sequenced but they also got the single and double modifications so it's basically just by doing this you get not only each of the single knockouts and some combinations of double knockouts but you get the triple as well so if you did this traditionally you would make each knockout individually then you'd have to cross them and then you'd have to select for the ones which had both of the knockouts so it's like several generations and this is just like three two one all together in one in one package super convenient and again after like a month or something and basically, the final thing they did was just test it with a group of four proteins. So we've gone two, three, four, and here they were just seeing what the the knockout of everything looked like and see if it had the same phenotype that they expected based on previous studies with yeast. And they found it was a bit different, but again, they were just kind of showing how how quickly you could do all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's super cool. It's it's as I said, it's already been shown in plants that you can do this kind of multiplexing. Um, with uh, not multiplexing, but you can use this CRISPR with the DNA sequence to kind of help the repair give what you want. But it's cool that you can do it in moss and moss has this really great advantage that you can do everything within about one month because you can select already, you can do it in um, the protoplasts and then really easily regenerate them. And this is a bit limited in plants. So it's, it's a bit slower in plants, right?
0: How do I select for them?
1: Because um,
0: usually, what you do is you introduce like a resistance gene, and then you select on an antibiotic, and then. But in this case, they didn't introduce any transgenes, right?
1: No, they they still did transiently have the CRISPR in there, but then they can select against it. So I think the selection, I can't remember honestly. I'm, okay. I'm, I think the <laughs> selection was linked to the, the CRISPR or to the, the single guide. It's just that they didn't have to permanently be there, which is also an advantage. So you can then remove the, the CRISPR. You can like basically cross it out at the end, which is really great because in some non-EU countries, if you've made changes to a native gene, but you don't keep the CRISPR in there, it's not considered to be a GMO. Yeah. So not so in the EU because the EU is difficult and fussy. But um, yeah, so these would not be GMOs once they'd made sure that it was clear of, of the CRISPR. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the um, resistance was linked to the CRISPR cassette and then they can just move it out afterwards. Um, but I'm not 100% sure, sorry. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, they just said it really facilitates doing everything fast and in bulk and that saves time and it saves money. And one of the things that they mentioned at the end, which I think is really important, is the fact that you can do it so quickly means that you can do it multiple times. So you can do the same CRISPR changes independently in many ways. And usually when we use TDNA lines, we do one, maybe we have two. Usually we have two or are good scientists and we complement it. But if you do things like independently in multiple ways, you actually like increase the the, the reproducibility, the reliability, but you, you kind of, increase how likely it is that the results you see are actually related to the, the changes you're making, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's a bit more of a...
0: Yeah, that you don't just have a r- random event jumping in there. Exactly. And you're just observing this random event and thinking it's the meaningful thing that you did. Um,
1: yeah. So there was a few limitations. Um, CRISPR-Cas9 relies on an NGG sequence in order to f- find the place to cut. So you need to have this where you want to make the changes they did mention that there's now um new enzymes new cas enzymes which have different recognition sites so you could use those instead but yeah if you want to make a point mutation you're really limited to where you can cut um thing. they said that they used um the template dna they used like 20 to 25 20 to 23 base Mm -hmm. pairs this seemed to give them really nice precise editing but maybe you could get it even higher if you used different lengths of templates Maybe there's something, some other ways to to improve this even more. I think their their numbers were pretty good anyway. Like it's it's quite simple selection, but sure. They also could say something about the mechanism. So as I said, there's different ways for the cell to repair after it's been cut, and based on the way um, they saw the repair happening, they think it's a method called microhomology mediated end joining. They know that this pathway is active in metrella and actually they know it's quite highly active. So they said this might be one of the reasons that mm-hmm. this whole template things work so well in FISCO and it might not work so well in other species that don't have such an active um, microhomology-mediated end-joining pathway. Um, But basically based on the fact that you couldn't just do the editing with only the oligonucleotide, you needed to have the cutting, means it's more likely to be this method than, for example, the homology method, which wouldn't need there to be a cut. Um, So the cutting is basically increasing the chance of getting things in, which means it's also the microhomology method. The other thing they mentioned is that longer inserts um, seem to be harder to get, so they tried putting some tags in. It wasn't as effective as just like changing one or two base pairs. So this is something that needs to be like optimized in the mm-hmm. future. Um, uh, finally, they said they saw definitely the double was better than the single stranded DNA that they used. So yeah, all in all, it's just kind of a new technology um, which can be used to really quickly get lots of different mutants. And I think the benefit of this is that you can use it in a very large scale way so in in plants or in higher plants you're still very much limited by time and resources whereas in moss still a plant um but now with these kind of things you can really rapidly do things which means that they basically become you can just get more knowledge with less time I guess
0: yeah yeah you can yeah, you can start then doing like larger scale stuff, right? You can yeah. look at, at gene families or the whole gene like networks. Like knock out
1: 500 genes at one time or or yeah. tag 500. And I've seen this kind of thing be done for algae, for like chlamydomonas or even like people we are doing it for diatoms and stuff. This is like one thing, but for an actual plant, it's that would be super cool.
0: Yeah, cool. I mean, it reminds me, I don't know if it's this exact study, but there was recently a study about like multiplexing CRISPR-Cas, um, to like very high numbers, um, with just like more and more like uh, of the guide RNAs introduced, um, and I think we're still we're we're yet to see like all the crazy applications of this CRISPR system mm-hmm. when people start getting creative and like using several templates at the same time or several of the guide RNAs or maybe different a combination of different enzymes there like there's many like. details to play with with this method to get like really cool stuff with it
1: yeah that's the thing you get like this like this technology happens then you get all these like like diversity of of new applications that come from this like you get a leap and then you get all of this like scattering bounds like radiation of the the potential and some
0: of them are like super specialized and just for a very particular niche but others are like very generally uh, um, useful it's it's uh, really cool Mm -hmm. yeah thank you thank you for bringing that and with that, I think I should stop and an- announcing the jingles. I should just just hit the jingles.
1: there's other podcasts say, and now we're finished with this segment. Like we just <laughs> My we're not favorite too plant.
0: Yeah. My favorite plant this week um, is uh, Coleo. Kaiti Scutata, I'm sorry for butchering that name. Um, It's a tiny algae. I found this on Twitter through um, Henrik Buschmann, who is a group leader in Germany. Um, And uh, this is an algae and it's a really cool thing. Like I found this because Henrik Buschmann tweeted a short video from uh, under the microscope where you could see that in in a set of cells let me just see if i can find the the thing and show it to tegan and we will link the video yeah, here it is um to
1: whoa it's spinning yeah it's like uh, a turntable
0: yeah you have like this cross section or like this multicellular algae and then two of the cells right in the center they have spinning chloroplasts
1: dude we've got to write a post on this this is too cool
0: yeah um I mean, I don't know if we want to discuss this on air, but I'm already like, in touch with Henrik, um, Henrik Buschmann, because he, yeah, this is a really cool thing, and that's why like I brought this here now as my favorite plant. Um, I mean, the the video here uh, we link it; uh, it's uh, sped up 30 times, um, mm-hmm. so they like here they rotate very quickly. Um, in in reality, they don't uh, rotate that fast, but they still do rotate.
1: I would like to see like the the original because I find it really hard to grasp what 30 times is, but. They're still moving. I mean, I I, yeah. I would like to see just... It's really curious.
0: Yeah. Um, they oh, that's they're, super weird. Yeah, they're moving around. And um, so these algae, they're found... Um, like, I thought they maybe from a very exotic place. And they are. They're from an exotic place called Osnabrück. <laughs> it's just, it's just uh. a town in Germany. <laughs> um, where they're found in, like, lakes and ponds and so on. So they're actually quite common. Um, and we believe today that this is happening through myos- myocenes, myocenes, um Um yeah. proteins that are I think usually also involved in like uh, muscle movements for example in animals um, so these are uh, like um, yeah proteins that can c- uh, create mo- uh, movements and they're usually within like the cytoskeleton they can like slowly um move organelles through the cells. Like if you see like the chloroplasts <laughs> that move um, towards the light in some cells and so on, um this happens with the help of the cytoskeleton and my uh, myosins or myosins.
1: I looked up myosin and it's like, do you mean the geological time period from twenty three million years ago to five million years ago? No, I mean no, myosin.
0: I mean myosin the superfamily of motor proteins, mm-hmm. um best known for their role in muscle contraction. Yes. Um And it's believed that they also play a role here, but it hasn't been studied yet, so it's unknown.
1: Wow, cool! So, is this published work now, or no?
0: This is. I mean, they uh, he just uh, posted that from I think his observations. He says that they are not currently studying this organism because they don't have a project um, uh, on it yet. Um, they're studying some uh, other algae because uh, what they're actually doing in in the group is uh, something also very cool is uh, studying the cell division of algae because they are these predecessor predecessors of higher plants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool to study their cell division to understand how from something like uh, a unicellular or very few multicellular algae um, you can go to something as complex as higher plants in terms of 3D structure Because when you figure out how cells divide, you can figure out how they can build up 3D structures um, when they divide, Um, and it sounds a very like a very cool field of study. And yeah, I got in touch with Henrik over Twitter, and he was so kind to give me some of the details here. So all the credit of the facts here goes to him. Yeah, great. Um, He was very nice. Of. Um, explaining me how this works, and um, yeah, he says the in in a different algae, uh, the Mu- Mugiozia algae, um, they also have these spinning chloroplasts, and there um, this helps to adjust the amount of light hitting the chloroplast, mm-hmm. so they can like sort of. They say here their plastids they look like a bar of chocolate, eh. <laughs> so like there's a, a flat bar. Mm -hmm. And it sort of turns into the light when they need more light and it turns sort of perpendicular to the light to reduce the amount of light that's hitting it. Um... And on top of that, there's also like uh, animal cells that have nuclei that are rotating and so on. So there's a couple of organelles in nature that I found to be um, rotating. There's this idea
1: in, in some plants, the chloroplast can like move up and down the cells. This is like why the, the palisade la- layer is so like long as opposed to like wide, that like they can sink and, and come up depending on how much light there is. But I'm not sure how supported that is by by any evidence yet. I'm not sure if it's just like a, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, folky thing. So yeah I, we will definitely like look deeper into this because this looks yeah that's r- an
1: article about that, that sounds this so cool. Looks
0: really cool because this yeah this this he's studying the species because it has this uh, weird he just says it has a weird uh cell division something in between algae and land plants um so that's why he's studying it and as a side effect of studying this cell division he observed this rotation um which is by the way, happening permanently, so it, in this case, it might not be related to like adjustment to light, but we don't know. We have no idea yet. Um, it's something cool to find out. So yeah, that's the. I try once more to pr- uh, pronounce it: Colio Kaiti. Colio uh, Kaiti. Um, and that's from Henrik Bushman. You can find him at Buschmann Henrik on Twitter, um, and he's a, a very nice person. And uh, yeah, shares cool images of uh, of cells. And uh, now...
1: Diversity
0: in, Diversity in plant science, Tegan.
1: Uh, yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about Lynn Margulis, who's actually quite recent. She, um, she passed away only eight years ago, in November 2011, um, born in 1938. And actually, I came across Lynn because I was recently at a conference, and one of the um, speakers was introducing the endosymbiotic theories. This is the idea that plants became plants when um, a, an animal-like single-celled eukaryote engulfed a cyanobacteria, and that cyanobacteria became the chloroplast. And he said, "Hey, this is Lynn. Lynn is kind of the one who championed this and brought it to the modern age." And i had never heard of this before which is really quite embarrassing because i, I work on this i work on the development of plastids, and always when we talk about this we um reference the one of the the much older um discoveries of the phenomenon. so way back in the early 1900s there was um konstantin maris a russian biologist i'm sorry in 1905 he was kind of the one who first suggested chloroplast used to be cyanobacteria and that's after somebody else andrea Schimper, um saw chloroplast and said hey they look a lot like cyanobacteria so whenever we kind of reference this in the thesis we say um chloroplast evolved from an endosymbiotic event from cyanobacteria following the theory first proposed by konstantin marischowski i'm sorry um but we kind of ignore the fact that although it was proposed in 1905 it was basically not a popular theory it wasn't something where somebody proposed and everyone's like yeah that's the right idea and people really largely like ignored this and then lynn came along and she basically took up this idea and really suggested it um and made it like brought it into the present age and made it be picked up and even in her role of course she was ignored for a long time so um Uh, (laughs) Of course um,
0: I'm not making any snarky comments along the lines of Of course
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, There's a um, quote from a historian John Sapp on the the Wikipedia page Which says that Lynn Margulies' name is as synonymous With symbiosis as Charles Darwin's Is with evolution So, I mean, Charles Darwin also maybe didn't come up with the evolution theory There's some some discussions about that Um, Everybody builds off their predecessors, of course Um, But just to say a few comments about her, her formative paper on the origin of mitosing cells appeared in 1967. But before that, it was rejected by something like 15 journals. Oh. So I've been rejected by some journals before. It was painful. <laughs> I cannot imagine doing it 15 times, um, especially like believing so formally, so, so strongly. Apparently one grant application she put in Um, elicited the response, your research is crap, do not bother to apply again, which is just like completely cold. Um, Yeah. So despite all of this, she kind of kept on developing and she became known for this symbiosis and she's really the one that pushed it into the Middle Middle Ages, the modern age, as I mentioned. Um, She was recognized as one of the 50 most important women in science just by Discover um, magazine. Um, There's a few other things about her. So she... um, Yeah, I don't know if I should go into it so much. She's kind of called a scientific rebel. She is a critic of this neo-Darwinism because she doesn't like the idea um, that life evolved based on competition. She actually holds the opposing theory, basically, which is that symbiosis is the the grounds for evolution of life, Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Um, There's a few controversial things as well. So I'm always not sure about like this. So... There's, there's some discussions of it, her being an AIDS denialist, although she denies being an AIDS denialist. And there's also some evidence on the Wikipedia page they claim that she was a 9-11 truther. So um, I am not sure about that, <laughs> if that's true or not. That seems very yeah <laughs> concerning. Um, putting that aside very important at least for sticking with pushing this endosymbiosis theory because otherwise I guess I mean I'm sure we would have got there by now but um, yeah, it was kind still, of a defining
0: event yeah it it needs people like her to like push this and bring this to attention um, so yeah I don't know if it's like amateur psychology but I think uh, like I've heard this before like in other contexts when people are often ignored by their field they sometimes have a tendency to then go also to like conspiracy theories because they always like in their sort of serious professional work they go against the grain and so they think in other areas they might also want to go against the grain
1: (laughs) so this Um, is what they kind of say she's like unruly, she's a vindicated heretic she's a scientific rebel um and yeah exactly what you said she kind of she works she thrives on the opposition like to, to push against something um yeah, which is which is good if it's developing science. It's not great when we have climate change denialists and things like that. So, yeah, um, yeah. She also was married to somebody famous, and I've noticed there's a tendency in um, science to mention this about women. So I think the famous person is Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. You know him? Yeah, like he's <laughs> a TV think, personality
0: in the US, like yeah. doing lots of psychom.
1: So astronomer, like. Um, super famous I think we should refer to him now as Lynn's husband <laughs> like because it's is really I mean I'm being, I'm being stupid guys don't get up for that it's a really common thing where um women still get kind of oh you're Blas husband oh like this is like ah uh, blah blah blah
0: there was one, like uh, Josh Clooney's wife she's a um, political activist and she was invited to a conference and I think some journals actually wrote that um, her name which like goes to show Amal. like I forgot her name Amal Amal um, like they mentioned her by name and she brought her husband and then there was like George Clooney in the picture which most people recognize more but they just mentioned him as the husband of this uh, famous political activist and I quite like that because it's so uncommon I
1: mean it depends I mean obviously he's more well known if it's in her field they should absolutely do that but of course if it's in a gossip magazine you shouldn't be like like and this random guy it's like clearly he's the more like this is true but even in, in cases where like they're they're roughly equally known there's kind of this deference to the family which happens with women which doesn't happen like women get asked more about their family life than is absolutely necessary in the professional sphere I would say yeah
0: mm. <laughs> okay um, this is what we are now right this is where the fun begins this is where the fun I like begins. this single this a lot is where the fun
1: uns i don't have very many fun facts this week i'm sorry i then came a little I, bit I begin,
0: empty-handed uh, i mean i've been there i i know that sometimes it's hard for some reason i just stumbled across so many things that i think i will keep some for next week um let's start with something that's not so fun uh, but an interesting scientific story is that extinction rates in plants are up to t- uh, 350 times faster than we previously thought Um, So, there's a new study um, that looked at more accurate estimates of how quickly um, plant species are going extinct right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's quite bad, but um, from the study uh, I learned about something like diversity cold spots. We talked a lot about diversity hotspots recently, (laughs) and cold spots are areas where you have uh, only very few species um, that are um, present there, but they're exclusive to this environment. Um, So sometimes you have these cold spots where you just have like two or three specific types of weed that you only find, for example, on the British islands and Mm -hmm. nowhere else. Um, So it's not a diversity hotspot, but a cold spot. Um, And uh, they're also worth preserving because if you lose... There are only very few species. It becomes like nothing. It's not even a cold spot anymore, and yeah, you lose these um, important species there. Uh, the the other thing I learned from this article is that this plant ex- extinction is very hard to observe because first of all, you can't be sure that you just didn't find the last surviving examples of a plant, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, uh, something that was a f- throwing of estimates before is that some plants they might live for a very long time and so they're not considered extinct like the bowel baobab trees uh, on madagascar um, but there is no newcomers of them there's like no new saplings growing mm-hmm. so they are pretty much They're as good as extinct, extinct yeah um, and if you factor this into the the calculations um this means that it's uh, it brings the extinction rate up to 350 times faster than what we thought before which is quite terrifying but like what isn't terrifying at these times like with the climate crisis
1: I'm not sure I don't know if I get the the thing about the cold spots like yes but it just seems like a kind of hashtag all trees matter like I mean
0: I, mean, I think they mean that like they're not as important as hot spots but they're compared to just like regular diversity somewhere you shouldn't overlook these overlook these cold spots like if you want to rank them you have like hot spots then you have cold spots and then you have like sort of endemic plants that are not exclusive there and if you lose their diversity they still I'm, grow elsewhere no I think
1: I misunderstood why what's special about the cold spots like they don't have very many plants and what they're
0: they have a few plants that are specific to that area
1: but that's what that's what hot spots have too Like that's what endemic yeah, means is it only grows there yeah so I, I would still rank them like way on the list underneath everything else um i mean to me the whole point of the, the biodiversity hotspots is that we have limited time and energy so we should prioritize it and then on the, that basis yeah of course yes it's also worth saving the cats or like it's also worth saving xyz but yes the the argument is we want to save everything but we cannot we financially cannot and given like all other resources time money how much people give a shit we cannot and therefore that's why the biodiversity hotspots
0: They say, however, cold spots stand to lose more uniqueness than hot spots. For example, seven cold spot extinction led to the disappearance of seven genera and in one instance, even a whole plant family. So clearly, cold spots also represent important reservoirs of unique biodiversity that need conservation. So I think the idea is that yeah, you have like whole like, yeah, in this case, like families or um, genera of plants that are just found in this cold spot while in a hot spot, you might like find other representative so you might lose some in the family but not the entire family well yeah. in the cold spot you qu- uh, it's quicker to lose an entire family of species
1: but this is two different this is to me this is two different styles of conservation so there's either a conservation where you're saving one species and that's what we tend to do with animals right so in animals when we focus on um, conservation of an elephant or a tiger or a um, sh- small hopping shrew from south australia whatever you don't usually focus on its ecosystem. I mean, ultimately, long-term, you want to, but you basically take that guy and you make sure it can breed. Like, that's your yeah. thing. And you can do the same thing with plants, but that's different from saving an entire, like, ecosystem or environment. So the cold spots, I would say, you can basically solve that problem by taking them to a zoo or a botanical garden, the equivalent, um, and breeding them. And it sucks because you lose them in their, like, real location, but that's yeah. a better solution, whereas with the hot spots you have to save that.
0: Yeah. I mean, their point in the paper is not that cold spots are as important as hot spots. Uh, I just found it interesting to read about, like, to learn about the classification of a cold spot.
1: I disagree with them, I disagree with you, and I'm tired, I want to go to bed, Yarm.
0: (laughs) No, you go to bed when we have fun, Tegan.
1: (laughs) Sure, okay. Um, (laughs) I have, like, one vague fact, which is not even a fact, it's, like, a story. Um... (laughs) There's these things called peppercorn trees. Um, They don't make edible peppercorns. It's like this weird tree, which you find it all over Australia. Um, And it's kind of bizarre. Like we deliberately planted a whole lot of trees. Um, And there's an article, it's called Why Peppercorn Trees Always Planted in Schools. So basically, um, outside of schools in Australia, they would put these trees. I had one in my backyard growing up as well. Um, It's quite nice. It has a peppery kind of smell. So like um, as you squish the leaves, it's it's quite pleasant. But um, it's kind of just an article discussing the history of these plants and the idea that um, during like the, the 1800s or even like later on, like in Australian history, all of the different Commonwealth countries were no, not the Commonwealth countries. Um Oh my God, I'm so bad today. I'm so tired. I wanna go to sleep. <laughs> uh.
0: Sorry, Gegan.
1: Um, So it's basically this idea that people were planting these, they were like deliberately exchanging trees as kind of a symbolistic, a symbolistic? Symbolic. Symbolic, there we go. Um, Symbolic exchange of cultures. So like eucalyptus was sent to America from Australia. Um, Like jacaranda was sent back to Australia. And the reason we have these peppercorns is that we were trying to um, signify these strong ties we wanted to develop with South America, particularly with Brazil and Argentina. Mm. So it was like this, these trees still persist a few like hundred years later or whatever, but they're like one way of doing cultural exchange in the time and kind of saying, hey, we tight, was by trading trees across the continents. And I just thought it was kind of a cute idea. <laughs> yeah, Say it with it trees. <laughs>
0: that's cool. Um, I have a very short thing that's um, a cool trend that I observed on Twitter by finding two tweets that did it. <laughs> Um, which is using chalk to label wildly growing plants in cities. Um, it's quite cool. So To y- develop what? Uh, to label um, uh, just wild, like wild wildly growing plants. Okay. So they just go around and if they see like an Arabidopsis growing somewhere, they just like write Arabidopsis next to it with an arrow oh, pointing cool. to it. Okay. Um, and they had in the tweets that we will link in the show notes, they had some photos. I just find it so pleasant because it's just... Um, I mean, it's stuff like, uh, in this case, like dandelion or um, mm-hmm. a, a black um, maple. Uh, no, black poplar. Um, uh, in this case, this was in Berlin where they where they labeled these uh, these two, um, and somebody else showed this that they did that in in France um with like fig trees and so on and you have like these like on these images you have the plants growing like next to a post and there's like hardly any vegetation there but then you have like this plant making its way through the through mm-hmm. the topsoil um life oh, 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 oh,
1: oh, oh. <laughs> finds a way <laughs> I'm not sorry Wait. But life uh finds a way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> firstly I think we're gonna get sued and secondly like you recorded it especially for this
0: <laughs> yes I put it in my soundboard it's a bit so I have to like push up the volume I but think
1: like every second post I put in the Instagram stories is just like a picture of a tree growing in <laughs> a crack and like life uh,
0: uh, but it's, the there should
1: be more gifts on this I don't understand why there are not like there should be 30 different gifts of Jeff <laughs> Goldblum right like
0: yeah, it should be But so yeah if you are uh, some somewhat of a botanist and you know the plants that grow in your city consider just taking like a piece of chalk with you and just like writing on the sidewalk what this is and <laughs> making somebody else's day by if labeling if not chalk
1: how about permanent marker how about acrylic paint how about of course. fire burn it with fire <laughs>
0: <laughs> do we have something else Tegan
1: I don't have anything else.
0: Then, I'm sorry. Um, I have another fact? fact before the cat fact. Uh, the first one is, um, uh, I found it on The Guardian. It's um, an article about how there is not a single gay gene, but instead a number oh, of genes with this. very small effects that together explain about 30% of the same sex activity in a large study where they looked at a very large group of people and they didn't ask them whether they identify as gay or heterosexual. Um, they, they just... told a- them. <laughs> No, they the ask them, they're asking about same sex experiences, so people mm. who might say that they are heterosexual but had uh, same sex experiences, okay. um, they were then used useful. in the study um, to yeah look at genetic markers and yeah the make like, some people think it's just like, a a single gay gene that turns people gay. And it's not the case, like, with so many things, with so many complex traits. There's a lot of genes there. And even, like, with all of these genes combined, we can only explain about 30% of the um, probability of somebody having a same-sex experience. So 70% is, like, outside influences.
1: I mean, there's one of these, like... It's a very complicated thing um, from a moral point of view because often science comes in to try to say hey this like originally scientists wanted to say hey this is genetic because they wanted to say it's not something that's a, choice, that a choice and yeah. therefore it's not a lifestyle choice and therefore you shouldn't change people it's how you're born like i was yeah. born this way which is like on one hand the the intent was good but in the other hand like also then saying like this is a gene can have some like negative like yeah, people start trying going into
0: like eugenics or eugenics light like uh, of like yeah but, but just just general like
1: general like at this stage in the argument the idea that we're still trying to classify like what makes you gay it's like well nothing maybe like this is this is uh, no, our language is still i think overly simplistic to talk about this and i think again like the science it's it has like some interests but they often become morally complicated not just because of the science but also because of the language that we then use to discuss the science like and i mean also the the obvious fact of like should we even care like i mean as scientists we should care just for the for the sake of knowing because we like it but like why are we still trying to explain why people are gay at this stage like why are we still even using these terms like why does it matter this is definitely an issue right like what what is even the and of course like these kind of things can upset people like Mm -hmm. who have experiences and say like, like stop, stop classifying. Like why do you need to always be putting some like, and you know, like in in the past, like being gay originally it was, they put it in the psychological handbook because they wanted that people were not like put in jail for being gay. But like, this is just a new kind of oppression. Like it became like a psychological malady. And then it was like, okay, it's not there. Like it's kind of these new levels of trying to, and at the end of the day, it's still trying to justify why people are different, but it's like, well, maybe stop. We don't need to justify that. Like, maybe yeah. we're like, this is not something that needs to be justified anymore. But yeah. anyway...
0: Yeah, I, still, it's a, a well-written article. I completely agree with what you said. Like, It's something... I said
1: in a blathering w- way. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> I like make as,
0: as, as scientists, we often try to like make simple like statements or findings of things or looking at a very mm. speci- specific aspect of something and then completely ignore or like miss the entire uh, context and society of what we're researching and the findings that we're publishing and the way we're publishing them. And with these things, with like genetic uh, um, like basis of a trait like gayness or like sexual preference, it's just... Yeah it, I think it can be the, very problematic one pr- of problematic. the the
1: cause of science is that in order to understand something you first have to simplify it and classify it so you have to put it into like very controlled like discrete variables xy this is like part of the scientific process in some ways and that can be very problematic when you're talking about like complex human identities i think this is kind of something yeah. that where the two and you see this even in in the more basic idea of like we try to classify organisms using like these these hierarchical systems but this is not always absolute there's also so like nature is never discrete and able to be like just put into categories but we try to do it and this can also have problems when we're talking about humans but yeah yeah anyway
0: yeah um so well well written article about you the bottom line is it's complicated like we can't like even with like large-scale studies uh we only can explain 30 percent of what's behind it uh, which to me it means that yeah it's maybe it's it's no use of trying to like fully map this out so with that let's uh end on
1: a cat fact a cat fact <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's...
0: i just like listening to cats cat fat yeah also I played around with like a voice generator online service and um, that was
1: it, what in, uh, US one
0: yeah, I don't... Yeah,
1: Female, US, 30 to 40 years old.
0: No, they all had just, like, first names, so it was, for me, very hard to figure out what they were supposed to be. Some of them sounded like stereotypical Italians, like, Cat the factor. And I don't know if it was meant to be <laughs> Italian or if it's just, like, a weird, different algorithm.
1: <laughs> it's like, this is Jana. Jana is a racist German who thinks <laughs> she's Italian. <laughs> it,
0: it was... It, it felt weird, but... Um, Mm. so I took one that didn't have too much of an accent to me my fact about cats that's because it was
1: American or US American that in itself might be a problem yeah globalization okay I shut up now I'm sorry just finish do the cat fact
0: my cat fact is about crows um crows what
1: No, (laughs) no, we finished the podcast. I will not hear about crows on this podcast. You also brought
0: like non-cat animal facts. What? Did I? Yeah, in the past you did. Um, (laughs) So crows love cheeseburgers um, and... And they're the
1: biggest threat to humanity. They're above velociraptors, above zombies.
0: They studied in in urban environments the diet of crows. And these crows, they they have a tendency to eat more cheeseburgers. So they did an experiment where they fed cheeseburgers to crows and looked at their health. um, uh, And they found that they had higher cholesterol and they were a little bit fatter. But in general, in, in bird culture, um, this is meant to be a good thing because, like, wild crows, they don't have this added body fat. They are more susceptible to diseases and so on. So they're actually, the fatter birds have, like, they're fitter, essentially, because they have reserves uh, in, in energy um, and are more resilient to food shortages. Uh, so what, what kills them in urban environments is not a high cholesterol from eating cheeseburgers. It's uh, other things, like, traffic and cars and loss of habitat and uh, uh, toxic things that they eat but it's not the cheeseburgers Um, so yeah that's on National Geographic an article about this study on feeding crows cheeseburgers and looking at their high cholesterol levels
1: I'm literally weeping because nobody will fund my science
0: (laughs) you should have had cheeseburgers to crows they
1: didn't even feed them the crows were naturally eating the
0: cheeseburgers they did an experiment where they had like a control group and a, uh, a group that was fed on cheeseburgers, so they didn't experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I am
1: so sad and tired and angry at the same time. <laughs> also, like. <laughs> crows are just like they're coming for I mean maybe it's good maybe the crows will get so fat like we shouldn't be making the crows fitter if feeding them really makes them fitter we should cut off their cheeseburger access because they are coming for us like for sure they can open doors they can do complex puzzles they can recognize faces they can remember the people who have slighted them in the past like they are our number one enemy and we should be we should be aware and afraid of the crows and now what we're making them better we're like giving them our own food taken ripped from the, f- the mouths of open Ob- beast children. We've given them our burgers so that they themselves will become stronger, like better able to resist hunger. This is this is insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Just so disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> and if any crows are listening I love you and I want to be like taken into consideration please let me live
0: <laughs> I for one welcome our no crow overlords
1: <laughs> I love you those are the best hashtag crow life
0: <laughs> so follow us on all of our social media you can find me on twitter at, at @plantspipettes.
1: I am on Facebook and the Instagram at (laughs) crowsforever and also at plantsandpipettes.
0: You can read articles about crows and pipettes on plantsandpipettes.com.
1: Um, Please always comment, rate, like, subscribe. Give us nice reviews um, and even give us bad reviews. It helps if you comment and tell us how to improve or if you just comment and say hello because it keeps us up in the algorithm, I guess.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. Our opening and closing music is uh, Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.